0: You've been my friend all my life. You got me this job. You made him send for me. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be like you, Mark. You've been a lawman all your life. Yeah, yeah, all my life. It's a great life. You risk your skin catching killers, and the juries turn them loose so they can come back and shoot at you again. If you're honest, you're poor your whole life. And in the end, you wind up dying all alone on some dirty street. For what? For nothing. For a tin star. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin.
1: And I'm David Daw, coming to you from the new Squarespace Podcast Closet. So named because unlike the long rectangular (laughs) podcast closet at my old place... The wall lengths in here are much more equal.
0: Uh, So Squarespace, if you want to sponsor us or, you know, just Mm -hmm. even pay for our website that we host (laughs) with you, (laughs) we just did a plug for you. We literally named David's Podcast Closet after your company. This week, we watched the third of the 1952 nominees... The Western High Noon, starring Gary Cooper and co-starring with support by Grace Kelly. And I don't know if I have Stockholm Syndrome from the last two movies that we watched in this year, or if this movie was good.
1: (laughs) I would argue this movie is good. It's interesting cuz it's kind of the exact opposite of The Quiet Man, right? Like instead of a movie about an entire town that wants this one guy to do violence, it's this one guy making an argument for necessary violence while an entire town is like, "I would actually rather just let evil win. I don't I don't actually want to fight." Yes. <laughs> And I think, like, one, that's actually just inherently a more dramatically compelling situation. And two... I think this movie does a really good job of actually exploring the complexity of that, unlike The Quiet Man, which just completely falls apart when it picks a side on violence versus nonviolence at the end of that movie.
0: And I think it's actually a really good Western. And as you know, I'm a pretty big Western nerd. So for me, that's exciting because I feel like it's the first Western that we've watched that is fully formed. That does all of the things that I like about Westerns, that has figured out how to do the trope of, like, the one guy against everybody else, but in the end, he is in the right. I mean, there's really, like, two basic kinds of Westerns. There's the one where there's the guy who stays in town to protect everybody from the bad guy, and then there's the one where the guy goes out and travels. (laughs) And this is a stay-in-town one. I also think it's really interesting that basically the entirety of Hollywood was offered this role before they gave it to Gary Cooper, which I understand. Yeah. He's a little old for it, but something about that actually works for me.
1: Yeah. I think, honestly, I don't think this would have gotten nominated for Best Picture if any of the other people it was offered to got the lead. Because I think what makes this an interesting and distinct Western is, in fact, Gary Cooper playing it as a guy who's kind of too old for this shit.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: And kind of not cut out for this thing. And the only other one on there on that list, because it's John Wayne, Gregory Peck, Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift and Charlton Heston. And Gregory Peck and maybe, maybe Montgomery Clift could do it.
0: But they're both really young compared to Gary Cooper. Yes. And a little too pretty, I think.
1: Yeah, I think in both cases, that's true. The only reason I kind of want to give it to Montgomery Clift is that this is actually a movie of smoldering indecision in the way that he wanted all of the movies he was in to be, and they just weren't. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but I don't know if he can actually smolder is the problem. He he smolders the way that if you pour water on a campfire, you do get some smoke but the coals are damp
1: <laughs> yeah that's fair
0: marlon brando would have been a disaster oh f- for sure very sexy but yeah totally wrong
1: john wayne thank god john wayne was a conservative piece of shit about this movie because he would have ruined it
0: charlton heston also
1: same <laughs> yeah But the thing I find kind of fascinating about that is the reason at least John Wayne and I think Charlton Heston both turned it down was explicitly because they thought the movie was too uh, explicitly an allegory against blacklisting, which they supported because they're both terrible. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so weird that this movie is seen as too direct an analog for blacklisting because its basic point is just evil triumphs when good men do nothing. That's basically the entire plot of this movie. And they were like, whoa, gotta keep my hands off of that spicy meatball. Like, hmm, don't know if I want to be attached to a message that controversial.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, here's the question though, because I read that too, but what it says in Wikipedia is that he turned it down because he felt that Foreman's story was an obvious allegory against blacklisting, which he actively supported. And I'm like, Does he mean the screenplay or the story of the guy who wrote the screenplay getting blacklisted? Because, yeah, I mean, that also was a pretty obvious allegory against blacklisting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do think it makes more sense as just... Foreman who wrote the screenplay for this was blacklisted yeah Carl Foreman and that like it makes way more sense that people are keeping their hands off of this because it is a blacklisted screenwriter rather than because the movie itself, the screenplay itself is too controversially attached to those ideas. Because you can make this a story about blacklisting. It is, in fact, a little bit weird how the town has turned on Gary Cooper's character. It's kind of for no reason. It's kind of just because it makes their life easier. So let's just go along with it. But that doesn't specifically apply only to the Hollywood blacklist. Right. (laughs) That applies to, like I say, almost all evil in the world.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, man, I don't want to fucking deal with this. This is hard. Yeah. <laughs> you want to deal with this? No, 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 no. We're not here to help you. I'm sorry. Go away. Yeah. I mean, that's like all of the history of the 20th century's descent into fascism.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and the movie specifically, uh, we we should get into the, you know, four sentences of actual plot because this movie is all about incident and I say that as the highest compliment yeah because this movie happens in real time basically in a highly dramatic situation but with very few story beats to that highly dramatic situation Gary Cooper plays a small town marshal named Will Kane who has just gotten married to Grace Kelly and is about to retire he's one day away from retirement but it's the 19th century so he doesn't know that means he's marked for death
0: (laughs) Yes, because movies have not been made yet.
1: <laughs> but right as he is about to leave town, he learns that Frank Miller, a vicious criminal that he put away for murder, has been released for mo m- m- reason, reason uh, and is bringing his gang to town to get revenge. And that essentially putting Frank Miller away was Will Kane's big moment of cleaning up this town. And he's got to do it again as one last job before he goes and lives with his devout Quaker pacifist wife as a shopkeeper. And then he tries to get literally anyone in this town where everyone starts out so happy for him and saying, like, he is my best friend and he made this town. He tries to get anybody to come help him and nobody does.
0: Well, one guy does. (laughs)
1: One guy does and then backs out of it, which is brilliant. And then a 14-year-old is like, I'll go off and die for you. And Will Kane's like, oh, motherfucking Christ. You will not do that. Yeah, no. (laughs) And then there is a big shootout that he would just barely lose. But his wife comes back for him after trying to leave and go like, I'm a pacifist. I will not stand by and watch you get in a big gunfight. Guns killed my father and my brother. I won't have any of this. She comes back and sort of gives this last minute assist, killing one of the four guys and giving an opportunity for Gary Cooper to kill the last one.
0: Well, I mean, she gives him an opportunity to kill Frank Miller, who is the main guy, not the comic book writer. But she comes back and Frank Miller takes her hostage and she turns around and fucking jabs her thumbs in his eyes
1: and then like falls over so that gary cooper can get a clean shot and kill the guy and then the two of them just get on their carriage that has all their shit packed in it and gary cooper takes the star off his chest and throws it down on the ground and they just go away
0: and that's the end of the movie and it's fucking great
1: yeah <laughs> When I say this movie is all incident, this movie is a series of vignettes of him going to different parts of the community and trying to get help. And those parts of the community all refusing help in different and distinct and interesting ways while the clock is ticking. The reason I wanted to go into the plot description is very early on. He comes by the judge and is like, you're never going to believe it. Frank Miller's back. And the judge is like, yeah, I already heard about that. I'm packing up all my stuff and I'm leaving. Let me tell you why. In the fifth century in Rome... (laughs) They got rid of a dog shit emperor that everybody hated. And then a few years when that emperor came back, everybody decided, you know what? It's fine. I actually liked it better when Tyranny was in charge. I've seen it before and I'm seeing it again right now and I'm getting out of town while the getting's good. Which
0: is really funny because he definitely was not around in the fifth century. Yeah. But so this actually goes to what I was saying about how the thing that I really like about Westerns is fully formed here, which is that. There are these archetypes that exist in Westerns. And it's very fun for me to watch as, you know, oh, okay, this is the time where we have like the one guy who's very well educated who lives here. Oh, here's the saloon owner who is like a little bit of a dandy, but also is kind of a dickhead. (laughs) Of course, we have to have like the Hispanic woman who is the femme fatale. And this is an interesting character here. Mrs. Ramirez? I don't remember what her first name is because everyone just calls her that. Uh, Helen. Helen, yes.
1: First of all, we should say that like in a real break from some of them we've seen, Helen Ramirez is actually played by a Mexican actress.
0: Yes. (laughs) She's a Mexican character played by a Mexican actress. (laughs) Who'd have thought? Mm -hmm. And Katie Gerardo, who is the woman who plays her, was actually the first Latin American actress to be nominated for an Oscar and the first to win a Golden Globe Award for this specific performance she was not nominated for high noon for an oscar but she did win the golden globe and she's fucking great yeah her character is on the page not very much and she is bringing an incredible complexity to this character apparently she used to run around with frank miller then she dated will kane And now she's dating some other dude. Yeah. Who's like.
1: Gary Cooper's like (laughs) deputy sheriff who sucks and is like. Yeah. The very (laughs) first sign that this is going to go real bad for Will Kane is that he's like, we got to round up a posse and his deputy's like okay, but like, they didn't promote me to your job when you said you were leaving. And so I would actually like it in writing that I'm getting a promotion if I help you do my job. Yes.
0: And Yeah, so this guy's like kind of a shit, but it's pretty cool because Helen Ramirez is like, yeah, you suck. You're a coward and I don't want you to touch me ever again. Get the fuck out. And then he does, which is cool. And then when Grace Kelly comes to visit her because she thinks that the reason that Gary Cooper is staying even though everybody is like you don't have to say it's fine get out we, don't, we really don't need you to stay it's cool is because you know he's carrying some torch for Helen but he's not she kind of reads Grace Kelly the riot act of like you suck I can't believe that you're gonna bail on your man who is you know risking his life <laughs> but Still helps her get to the train station to leave, which I just think is such a fascinating paradox.
1: <laughs> As Grace Kelly says, Helen Ramirez's big line is that if Kane was my man, nothing would stop me from holding onto a gun and helping him. And Grace Kelly does immediately respond with like, you know, you could just go help him anyway. And Helen Ramirez kind of doesn't have anything to say to that because she's also getting out of town. Um
0: well yeah cuz she's scared as shit of her ex-boyfriend coming back and killing her too.
1: Which yeah, I think you're right she's giving this fantastic performance, but I also think the role is allowed to be so interestingly complex. She's the silent partner who owns the controlling stake of the saloon and the scene where she lets her partner buy her out is so fascinating because there's sort of this unspoken thing of like, oh she's actually effectively been running this thing that like the only reason this business is successful is because of her
0: right but
1: because she's a latina woman or
0: just a woman she
1: can't be the face right yeah we're
0: talking about a point in time (laughs) where women could not own a business legally so yeah Regardless of whether or not they were Mexican.
1: (laughs) So she has this guy buy her out. And the guy is it is very interesting to me that the guy is not shitty in an active like I always knew I was going to win the business over you. You didn't have the stay and like none of that shit. But in trying to be nice about it, he's kind of casually racist in this way that she's like, I don't need to hear from you. I just need your money. Goodbye. And it's great.
0: She's great. And there is a problem with her being quite so sexualized. But she's not a prostitute. She doesn't run a brothel. She just seems to like dating a lot of guys.
1: Yeah. And it seems like she's sort of has been a real power center in this town. One of the fascinating things that is not really made explicit is the way that the balance of power shifted when Will Cain drove Frank Miller out of town. You know a lot of people are kind of upset about it. You know sort of in big broad strokes that like this used to be an everybody got drunk at the saloon kind of town and now it is cleaned up and that the saloon isn't necessarily that happy about it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they locked up the biggest drinkers.
1: <laughs> yeah. But you don't necessarily have it spelled out for you. Like, this person used to be more powerful and they're upset about Will Wilcane in this way. And this person just doesn't appreciate what he did and blah, blah, blah. You don't get that kind of like Game of thrones e power mapping. You just get this broad sense of there's a real history to this place. And people are reacting to Will Wilcane because of a history that we only know the broad strokes of. In a really interesting way. Uh,
0: Yeah, and it's nice to have a film that trusts the audience to infer things instead of doing that power mapping. Do we know the details? No, but we have a scene where the saloon owner says, or the hotel owner? I don't know. Anyway, says something to the effect of, listen, there's a lot of people who actually weren't that happy when your husband came around, Grace Kelly, because... uh, When Frank Miller was here, we used to make more money. And there's something just very sinister about that. Yeah. I mean, particularly because Grace Kelly is very young as compared to Gary Cooper in this and also feels very young compared to most of the people in this town other than the 14-year-old boy. (laughs) And that guy is threatening as hell.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That guy has such a, like, first of all, he sounds enough like Vincent Price that I stopped twice to be like, no, but is Vincent Price in this movie? Because he just has that kind of very sinister high clipped thing going on that he is going like this, but he does it way more like Vincent Price than I can do it. (laughs) But also because all of his lines are him... Not being polite, but explaining that he is polite. Yes. While saying the most sinister shit. Yeah. Which is a really terrifying energy. It doesn't come to anything. There's no, like, he's not the secret villain of the movie or something. No. It's just this, like, weird and interesting character. <laughs> around town
0: yeah that's one of the things that i love about westerns is that you get a feeling for the community by these individual archetypes who usually fall into some kind of trope but that's i I don't know i just love that (laughs) yeah i'm gonna get very pretentious here for a second but i think that the western is the american version of comedia (laughs) dell'arte There are specific stock characters, but what you can do when you put them together is nearly limitless. They will all react in certain ways, but because the combinations can be so many and the situations in which they are put can be so many, they tend to be really interesting. And it's why you can have in the late 60s, early 70s Westerns, And now even we're going to turn this on its head is because it's so specific and they're so defined that it's easy to flip the trope in some way, which is why I really like Westerns. And I feel like this one is the first one that we've watched where those outlines are strong enough that throwing them into this particular situation, I don't have these moments of like, I don't understand what this person's motivation is. Why do they want to do this? (laughs) No, but this character shouldn't have that reaction to this thing. Like, everyone feels real (laughs) because they are so stock. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Uh,
1: No, I totally agree. I mean, I know you don't like Stagecoach at all. I like it barely okay. But even the Oxbow incident Mm. has this thing where, like, Weirdly, in this movie's favor is this is our first formulaic Western. Yes. This is our first Western that is shaped the way a Western is supposed to be and not a story set in the West.
0: Yes. I mean, down to like, it ends with the shootout on Main Street where everybody's hiding inside and peeping through the windows.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I do think that that gives it this sort of energy that our earlier Westerns haven't had, it gives you this bar to measure things against and to go, oh, hey, Gary Cooper is actually doing really interesting work and it's really interesting Gary Cooper is here. Yes. Because it is is separating it from the formula that it's in. I do think there is so much of this that is like the next 70 years of Western films. I mean, one is Lee Van Cleef is here for the first time and we're going to be seeing that face a lot. (laughs) As we go through Westerns, as he is the bad guy in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. and Yeah,
0: all of those for a few dollars more.
1: Is in uh, Escape from New York, which tragically was not nominated for Best Picture, but rules in Escape from New York. I mean,
0: I don't think that the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was nominated for Best Picture, was it? Because the spaghetti Westerns were largely... Kind
1: of ignored by the Academy. Yeah. His filmography on his Wikipedia page is so goddamn long. And it rules. It's just like movie after movie where you're like, that movie rules, that movie rules. Also, fun Lee Van Cleef fact that I am just 100% stealing from Blank Check, but his tombstone actually says the best of the bad.
0: Oh, wow. That's fucking rad. (laughs) Yeah. Also, he is very young in this and- Holy shit, he was gorgeous. Yeah. Like Gregory Peck level. Because he doesn't have a whole lot to do with this movie. So occasionally you'll have a shot of him waiting for the train for Frank Miller to show up. And they'll just linger on his face for a little bit. And I was like, "Ah." (laughs) Every time. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, the f- Lee Van Cleef fun fact is that he refused to get his nose done because he was going to get a much larger, more sympathetic part.
0: In this one, yeah. Yeah,
1: that's what I'm saying. He was going to be Harvey Pell. He was going to be the uh, sheriff's deputy that's an asshole that is instead played by Lloyd Bridges.
0: And also was such a shit part. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, you're going to be the petulant 29-year-old asshole who's like, If you don't give me a promotion, I'm not doing my job.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can see why he made the decision. But it is this thing where, like, you sort of think of that as a fun fact and not like, oh, that really was the like turnoff to this like weird alternate universe where Lee Van Cleef was an incredibly handsome leading man for 20 years instead of just being a progressively weirder looking B-movie bad guy who became the B-movie bad guy over the course of his life just because he like didn't get a nose job and honestly made the right choice. One, makes him look cool and distinct. Two, gets to have a rad tombstone. Three, doesn't play kind of thankless roles as kind of the also-ran second handsome guy.
0: <laughs> Imagine just playing Harvey Pelt until you get Too old to play Harvey Pell.
1: I mean, that's kind of Lloyd Bridges' career.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And sort of sucks.
1: Yeah. Also, this is sort of starting to be the point where I don't just recognize the big names of the movie we're in. Like, I do recognize some secondary players. Oh, these are people who stuck around until, like, 80s action movies when I was a kid, you know? And so I'm, like, excited to see this is the first Lee Van Cleef part. And excited to see those ringer guys, the character actor people, start showing up here. We should talk about the scene in the church, because the scene in the church is so good.
0: Yeah, I mean, we could talk about so many scenes, but yes, let's talk about that one.
1: (laughs) To me, that's the one that's so good, that elevates this above being a formulaic Western, because it does the formulaic job it needs to do, because by the formula, what needs to happen is He doesn't get any help. Right. Mm. That's the function of that scene. And yet it lets it breathe so much because initially, like five guys jump up to help and then somebody else goes like, no, no, let's be rational and talk this out. And then you go, oh, this is how they're going to get him. But then even in the debate, like at one point, this woman just gets up and goes like, I can't take this anymore. We all know you have to go help Will Kane. Why are you doing this? Somebody do something. <laughs> and then everybody just goes, well, now that her outburst is over, I just want to say my thing. <laughs> it's that people within this debate have this range of views from completely dog shit, stupid, self-interested stuff to really high-minded versions of things where they still aren't going to go help Will Kane. Yes. To just desperately trying to say, like, I literally physically can't go do something about this because I'm a woman in the Old West. Right. But, like, somebody, please, God, stop being so stupid. And they've let all of the kids go out to play So that they don't overhear them talking about whether they're going to go out and try and kill some guys. And then after Will Kane's friend, who is it that's there? Is it the mayor that's there at the church? That's the Judas figure for that scene?
0: The one that doesn't show up or the one that's there at the church?
1: The one that is at the church. And yes, it's Thomas Mitchell. It's the mayor who's the one that gets the final word in that debate and starts off going like, I just want to say that he's like the best marshal we've ever had and this town wouldn't be half of the town it is without him. That's why I want him to leave and live a safe and happy life and not have to do a big fight. So you should just go on your way now, marshal. Have a good day. Bye.
0: Well, and then somebody pipes up and is like, well, hey, but we've paid him all this time, so... Maybe he should uh, he should stick around and do this for us <laughs> and not ask us to do anything.
1: Yeah, but the shot where Will Kane leaves the church and all the kids are playing outside is so good.
0: There's a lot of really great cinematography in this movie. And it's not the kind of cinematography where you go, oh my God, look at this innovation and in how they used cameras or lighting or whatever. It's just beautifully composed shot after beautifully composed shots.
1: Yeah. And it's not in an environmental sense, but in a film production sense, like it is sustainable in this way where I see how they're going to be able to pump out this genre now. Yes. I get how this will be Hollywood for like the next 20 years. And even like on a TV show schedule will be Hollywood.
0: Fun fact the cinematographer for this movie, Floyd Crosby, well, a few fun facts. One, we have the same birthday, so that's rad. Two, he is the dad of David Crosby, of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Okay. Uh, and three, he apparently worked quite a bit with Roger Corman.
1: That rules.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So I love when you have somebody who is like an Academy Award winning cinematographer who also says, fuck it, I'm going to work with Roger Corman too. (laughs) Oh
1: man, we will not have any fucking cause to talk about Roger Corman in this podcast probably, but God, what a weird and fascinating dude. He
0: actually is in, as an actor, a bunch of Oscar nominated or winning films. Right. Like a lot. So we will get to talk about him, just not any of the movies that he directed.
1: (laughs) Right. Suddenly, this thing that's, like, turning for me in the 1950s is not just that movies are good now, although there are good movies now. It's this sense of this now hooks into the future of cinema. We're not in these, like, weird dead ends of why would anyone make a movie like this anymore? Even when they're bad, I get where this is Even Quo Vadis, which, fuck, I hated Quo Vadis. (laughs) Yes. I get where people went to go see this in theaters, you know? Like, I get why this becomes a big thing, because it is so much. And if you're going to go to the movies and see something on a gigantic fucking screen, you want to see fucking everything. Mm. And Quo Vadis gives you that. Doesn't give you any story, but it gives you that. There
0: are not a whole lot of parlor dramas at this point (laughs) there's not a whole lot of this is a three-hander that takes place in somebody's living room that you could see on stage and we'll have that shift like a lot of the 60s cinema is a reaction to this big 50s Stuff like the late 60s, early 70s stuff is more like let's focus on one guy's feelings for two and a half hours, which can be great, don't get me wrong. But the 1950s are when we figured out how to make movies, and if we haven't, we're figuring it out right now. Like big fuck off movies. Yeah. Someone other than Cecil B. DeMille is now making
1: that. Yeah, movies have figured out the kinds of stories movies are adept at telling. And are telling, broadly speaking, those stories. And then, like you say, we're going to get to the collapse of the studio system in, like, four years of a podcast time. And Hollywood is going to go insane again for, like... Honestly, basically until today. If I were going to do a broad three-act structure of movies from this point forward, it's the studio system figures out how to do big-budget epics. The studio system collapses at the start of the 1970s because of, like, Easy writer and independent filmmaking. Movies don't then figure out how to do big-budget shit again really stably until the Marvel movies.
0: I honestly haven't seen enough of the big 50s epics to make this claim, so... Take this with a grain of salt. But I feel like the Marvel movies have the same problems where the focus is so much on making it big, making it a spectacle that you lose a whole lot of what for me is interesting about watching a movie, which to bring this back around is why I love Westerns. Because they are big, they're spectacular, there's fucking horses everywhere. They built all of these fake towns in, like, the desert in California in order to make these things. And then just abandon them. Which is fucking crazy to think that they were like, yeah, we'll just keep building another fake town. Like, you can use the same one. I mean, they do sometimes, but they built a lot of them. But they really tell stories that I feel are very human and that I feel like I can connect with in a way that Quo Vadis, for example, doesn't. And in a way that most of the Marvel movies, honestly, I don't connect with in that way.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I would argue a little bit that I think Marvel movies are a little bit closer to the Western than they are to the big Roman epics of the 1950s. But I do definitely get what you're saying. I think the reason I would argue that is that, like, in the same way that the knock on Marvel movies very accurately is act three always devolves into like a beam fight. Right. Bad guy shoots beam at good guy and the good guy beam wins (laughs) is at its weakest. The Western genre does always descend into guy in a white hat, guy in a black hat stand in the middle of the town and shoot at each other.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's all of the stuff that happens before that's interesting.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And, like, it is how compellingly you get to that position that marks you as a good Western or a good superhero movie because Act 3 is always kind of going to be the same thing. Unless you are doing something really wild, and I'm going to love it, but usually you're going to kind of suffer for it at the box office, unfortunately.
0: Yes. Have you watched any of the Every Frame of Painting video essays?
1: Uh, a couple. It is not quite my vibe, but which one are you specifically sort of thinking about?
0: Basically every time that they do anything, <laughs> they always bring it back around to like, and here's why Marvel movies are bad as compared to other movies, which is like a little bit hammering at home. But yeah. In the Akira Kurosawa one, where they they talk about how he uses movement to create mood and to suggest the emotional inner life of somebody and also just to make stuff look beautiful, and then talks about how, and shows scenes. By comparison, there isn't a lot of that in Marvel movies. (laughs) That is something that I feel like the Western... Never has a problem with because whatever the action is in the Western town is always so fucking interesting. (laughs) And there's always, oh, okay, we're going to jangle along on the piano or somebody's on a horse and somebody's not or here's a carriage or whatever. Yeah. So even though you end up with the beam fight at the end (laughs) in most Westerns, (laughs) there's not a whole lot of sitting around a conference table in a government office talking. Before we get to the beam fight. There's a lot of like weird shit that happens. Like there's a little moment in this movie in high noon where the last thing that Gary Cooper does before the train comes and he knows that he's going to have to have this shootout with Frank Miller and like four other people, three or four other people is he lets the town drunk go like he's been held in the drunk tank and he's like, all right, get out of here. Go home. Yeah and it's the little things like that that make a western movie interesting to me because you couldn't i mean there's not going to be a situation in a marvel movie understandably because of the context in which it exists where they like go to a prison and they're like all right everybody go home because uh you know we're about to have some issues with galactus
1: <laughs> we don't need to have this full argument Basically, I just think good directors are finding spaces to do that in Marvel movies or finding spaces to do that in like a a, just an environment generally where basically everything has to be part of some fucking franchise or another of trying to find those moments to breathe, trying to find those moments of characterization. And it's super complex because audiences seem to fucking hate it.
0: There's that too.
1: (laughs) Seem very upset that it is not like correctly structured. When you have, you know, Captain America sit down and have a long talk about his feelings or something, it is a difficult balancing act. And I really admire it when I see a director pull it off. But I agree with you that, broadly speaking, there just isn't room in the fucking save the cat formula for these little weird moments of characterization that you get in this movie. Like the closest I can think of in a Marvel movie is you've seen Winter Soldier, right? The second Captain America movie.
0: I have not, though I understand that it is one of the better ones.
1: It very much is. And there is a very, very small scene where they are on the run. And because they're on the run, they're like trying to do computer shit at an Apple store. While they just kind of keep moving. And DC Pearson, who was in a sketch group at NYU while uh, we were both there with Donald Glover, actually, plays the Apple Store employee who keeps trying to be helpful at them while they are doing international spy shit and trying not to be recognized as two members of the Avengers. <laughs> it's very good and it's very funny and people talk about it specifically <laughs> because it gives this weird character room to breathe in a way that marvel movies typically don't
0: yeah but that actually proves your point right because when winter soldier came out everyone fucking hated it and now like <laughs> 10 years later it's the one when i go like i kind of haven't seen a whole lot of the marvel movies it's weird because i've not watched that many of them in order like every now and then i'll catch one yeah and then i haven't seen like the four that were in between and i watched some of the shows on netflix so like i have about i'd say like 49 percent of the marvel cinematic universe that i've experienced but whenever i say that people are like oh yeah winter soldier is actually really good and and every time that somebody says that to me i'm like god i remember when it came out and people said it was fucking dog shit
1: I remember it being kind of highly regarded because it did do weird fight scenes and actually interesting ones. But like, I do think that it was, I don't know. To me, I think it is highly regarded because it does actually manage that balancing act. It's kind of like a 70s paranoia thriller, but like every 15 minutes, Captain America throws a shield at something. (laughs)
0: Okay, now I just have to watch this tonight. Like, you just absolutely (laughs) gave me the best description of this I've ever heard. Like, 70s paranoia thriller, but every now and then Captain America throws a shield at somebody is like, yeah, I will watch the fuck out of that. But yeah, not to get, like, completely into talking about Marvel movies. Like, every fucking movie podcast in the history of ever. Yeah.
1: And, like, if you would like us to, we will spend plenty of time doing that in about 10 years. (laughs) because we're gonna have to do
0: they get nominated for stuff oh
1: yeah they start getting nominated pretty regularly when the 10 movie thing comes around
0: oh yeah yeah right
1: you know black panther gets nominated like they kind of get nominated for special achievement and not just being a marvel movie every like year or two
0: right 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 i forgot that that was a thing and that specifically they opened it back up to nine or ten because they wanted genre movies to be nominated yeah though I forget what was the inciting one there Was it a Marvel movie because it was a very specific movie that everybody was like, what the fuck? why wasn't this nominated?
1: Uh, I think it was actually uh was it the bat was it uh Second Batman second Nolan Batman?
0: Oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah it was it was
1: I always get the titles between those two confused, which is like absolute comic book fan heresy. But I always forget which one is Dark Knight Rises and which one is uh, just, is the other one just The Dark Knight?
0: It's just The Dark Knight, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I guess it's the Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, and my brain just won't accept that he got away with that.
0: Yeah, and Dark Knight Rises is such fucking trash. Anyway, it's fine. We will not get into that either.
1: Can can I? Okay, you can absolutely cut this. This is basically just a story I want to tell you of when I went to go see Dark Knight Rises. Um,
0: I'm very much here for this. Yes,
1: I uh, went to go see it with like a bunch of friends and coworkers and one of my coworkers fiance just walked out of the movie at one point and i was like oh <laughs> she's going to go to the bathroom or something and then i looked over like 40 minutes later and she still hadn't come back in and i went out to use the bathroom myself and saw her there and i was like are you going to come back in and she's like no i just really don't like that movie and i was like oh When did you leave? And she was like, oh, around the time that he like broke his back. And I went, oh, well, I mean, then right after that, there's a part where, well, there's a really long sequence where he's like in a hole and they kind of just talk about him being in a hole for a long time. And then he gets back and you know what? This is a bad movie. (laughs) You're right that you walked out of this movie.
0: Yeah, I do not fucking understand that (laughs) film at all. Like anyone who likes that. I went to see it with my mom and my little brother uh, because I was home at Christmas, I think, Christmas or Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. one, Uh, and my little brother and I got into a massive fight because he really liked it, and I was like, it sucked, it was fucking terrible, it was like, it was so, what did you like about it, it was so bad. So that's what I remember about
1: <laughs> I feel like for a comic nerd, it is such a fridge logic, terrible movie, because you can go along with the propulsiveness of like, Bane is here. We're doing all that Batman shit you love. It's all happening. And then you get to the end of it and you're like, wait, what was the Occupy stuff about? Why was Bane even in this movie? He like doesn't matter. What is it any?
0: Why is his what? voice him doing a Sean Connery impression <laughs> into a styrofoam cup? Like, what the fuck?
1: Yeah. There's interesting shots in that movie. I don't want to be like, Christopher Nolan fucking sucks. But it is the most like every problem I have with Christopher Nolan where the politics is just absolutely incoherent. And the cool stuff seems like, he had a real clear picture of what the cool stuff was supposed to be about that I was not let in on at all. And like things that are supposed to be, <laughs> be profound are just very, very stupid. And the actual profound stuff is not given enough room to breathe. And it's just anyway, all of this should be cut or keep it in and double it. I don't care. <laughs> Let's rate this movie. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. Nine.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's yeah. not quite a perfect film because I do think there are some weird, not even pacing issues, but just sort of like weird performances. It's a little off kilter. It feels a little bit like, it feels like the best Playhouse 90 movie length TV thing I've ever seen in my life, you know?
0: Mm, Yeah, I could, yeah, I absolutely see that. And I, I do feel like the pacing at times is a little frustrating, not because within the scenes the pacing is not good but because like we get it nobody's gonna come help do we have to do this in every part of the town (laughs) with every single person and eventually it becomes like okay we get it
1: (laughs) i would agree with that and i again think like The only reason this movie works as well as it does is Gary Cooper. Oh, absolutely. Because Gary Cooper really manages to convey all sort of five steps of the grieving process in his reaction (laughs) as he becomes more and more clear that nobody in the town is going to help him. At first, he's like, well, got to go to the next place, but I've only have enough time for blah. And then he's just like, "Okay, seriously, not you guys either. He really brings a lot of range to What you're right is the same plot beat over and over again. And that really helps it out and gets me to uh, watch this movie. Yeah.
0: Oh, I think so. It's super short, too. Yeah, it is. It's like an hour 24.
1: Yeah, it is a tight 90 minute movie. 85, it says on the on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, really breezes by, really pleasant to watch. We had some scheduling difficulties yesterday where I basically got a bunch of extra time to watch this movie after being 15 minutes in. And I was just like, fuck it, let it ride. Like, I will watch this whole movie right now, even though I don't have to, because I'm having a good time. And boy, I cannot say that about most of the movies we've watched, even a lot of the good ones.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I will say that, I mean, I often struggle if there are long stretches of the movie that do not have dialogue mm-hmm. and that happens twice in this movie at the very beginning they do this song about shooting frank miller dead where you see <sighs> the gang riding around and you don't even know who they are yet and it's still compelling and then like the last 15 16 minutes of the movie are they're not silent because like people are being shot at but there isn't any dialogue m- much like the occasionally somebody yells something at somebody else But I enjoyed watching that. It didn't feel like, oh, my God, I'm having to just stare at the screen and nothing is happening.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I will say I totally agree about the end shootout having no dialogue where it was definitely one of those things like the single take shot in Children of Men where it's just one of those things where I realized 10 minutes in like, hey, nobody's talked in a long fucking time and not in like a showy way in a like oh, wait, fucking what's... Oh, this is very cool. And actually really enjoyed that. I do have to say I'm revising it and my nine is now 100% about dropping this a point because of The Ballad of High Noon, which is a song I don't like very much.
0: It's not good. I
1: think that opening sequence is good, but I think, like, the fact that it's not played like the theme to a Bond movie, it's played as often as the, like... Da na da na is played in a Bond movie. <laughs> is just somebody going like, I shot Frank Miller down. And you're like, Okay, man, I get it. That's the name of the bad guy. You're you're you've named him, and you've said what needs to happen. And it isn't great.
0: Yeah. It's I, I it's not a good song. No. <laughs> but I would still say watch this movie despite it.
1: Yes. You can kind of enjoy the song ironically, and if you do, then there's no problem with this movie.
0: Uh, So next week, we are watching Ivanhoe, which I don't know what that's about.
1: It's a a Crusades thing. It's a Richard the Lionhearted thing. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's bleh. It's bleh.
0: Have you seen it? No.
1: I, I feel like I know about it from reputation somehow. And I don't remember why. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think of this as being like Daddy Tom's favorite movie or something. But I think of this as a movie I learned about the existence of very young. And I don't know why. <laughs> I just know that for some reason, I knew that there was a movie with this wild ass title when I was like four. And huh. God knows why.
0: Yeah, I I don't know either uh elizabeth taylor is in it and that makes me very nervous because for there to be a movie starring elizabeth taylor that i don't know about means that it may not be very good
1: (laughs) yeah but maybe but
0: maybe it's great yeah I, uh, i don't
1: know yeah
0: tune in next week to find out
1: yeah for sure And until then, this was a Western.
0: This was a hell of a Western. Yeah. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye.
1: You're cutting out with Kane. Oh, Harvey. And why are you going? What difference does it make? It's Kane. It's Kane. I know it's Kane. It isn't Kane. But I'm going to tell you something about you and your friend Kane. You're a good looking boy. You have big, broad shoulders, but he
0: is a man. It takes more than big, broad shoulders to make a man, Harvey. And you have a long way
1: to go.